0: Hey folks, Justin here. Before we dive into this week's episode, I'd just like to take a second and thank everyone for listening up to this point. Greatly appreciated, of course. And if you feel so inclined, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to this. Now, this is a very special chat for me, and it features one of my all-time favorite actors and human beings in general, and Mr. Stephen Williams. And by the end of this episode, I think you'll see why. So I'm going to shut the hell up, and without further ado, here's my interview with Mr. Williams as we chat about the Civil Rights Movement, 1960 Chicago, The X-Files, Supernatural, and keeping it fucking real. Enjoy.
1: Greetings, boils and goobles.
0: Well, Steven, before we kick things off here, I just want to start off by saying thank you for taking the time to chat with me. I know we've talked several times on the phone, but it's nice to finally sit down and make it official.
2: Hey man, I ain't got shit else to do.
0: (laughs) Hey, me neither.
2: All day long, this is me.
0: (laughs) You're having yourself a good old time, huh? For those of you who can't see, since I'm gonna only be uploading the audio, Mr. Williams is holding a Modelo and a Swisher suite.
2: what's happening on Thursday for me, okay? (laughs) Hey, 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 commercial, commercial, endorsement, Swisher Sweet.
0: Now, is that an actual Swisher Sweet or is there something else in there?
2: It's an actual Swisher. Yeah, just tobacco, just tobacco, because I can't get no endorsements from, you know, the cannabis. Well, maybe I can't. We're looking for endorsements now, so Swisher Sweet should be calling me (laughs) do a commercial.
0: So I guess just to get us started here, man, take us back in time. I know you were born in Memphis, country boy like myself. What were you into back then? Were you reading a lot of books? Were you watching a lot of movies yourself? What was life like for you growing up in Memphis? What's the scoop?
2: It's just some intricate shits. My mom was probably 16. My dad was 17 when they conceived and I came on the planet. And my grandparents raised me, mm-hmm. mom and dad were too goddamn young to do anything for themselves. <laughs> so dad took off to go to Michigan to try to make a life for himself what he did with General Motors. He worked for General Motors up until his retirement and is gone. I lived in Memphis, Tennessee with my grandparents who was a Baptist minister. My granddad was a Baptist minister and my grandmom who is just superwoman. They raised me until I was probably in the third grade. So my childhood was spent on a farm Mm. around mostly adults. No, there weren't any children miles around. I didn't see other children until I was in school. That was the only time I saw kids. Otherwise, I was raised around adults, around a bunch of morally and integrally good human beings. You know, I said to a friend of mine recently that I don't remember learning not to lie or not to steal. I don't remember learning to read or write even. I was just an observer who watched what was going on around me. That was primarily how I learned stuff. Anyway, I grew up with them until, I think I went to mom and dad at one point. Mom went to Michigan to live with dad and I went there with them and did kindergarten. And then they broke up again and I came back to Tennessee and lived with my grandparents until I was in third grade. I remember that first, second and third grade was spent in Memphis, Tennessee. An interesting, interesting time because I didn't see Tennessee television mm. until I was 12 years old or something. We I had radio. So I lived inside my head. You know that imagination thing on a farm during the I was born in 46. So 46, 47, 48, 49, 50, 51, 52, 53, 55, 50s and shit. This is a time of extreme racism yeah. in this country. Same goddamn time we're <laughs> going through now. Yeah. You know, but I didn't necessarily experience any negativity that I was aware aware of at the time you know hey boy a regular greeting for me that whole colored toilet colored water fountain da 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 none of that shit really registered with me I was in a very good school and the southern schools I say were much better than the northern schools because I graduated a full year ahead of all of my classmates because each time I changed cities I was tested and tested higher Mm -hmm. than the when I started to come to Chicago and Michigan and places like that. I always tested higher so they would advance me a half semester. Back then we did half semesters, you know, 1A, 1B, 2A, 2B, etc. There's so much. That's a very interesting (laughs) question you just asked. There's so much to what I went through that I go through in my head a lot but I never get a chance to explain to people. Hey, we've got nothing but time this evening. So all of that being away from other children, only seeing children at school, having no playmates on being around adults, watching how the adults operated, how my grandfather in the Baptist church operated, how he interacted with the white man's land that he was living on because he was a sharecropper. In addition, we all know what that term is, I think, sharecroppers, for these young people that don't know. You'll explain it to them later. But I went through all of that and then came to Chicago. So my childhood, to answer the initial question, I think, was a very wonderful child as far as I'm concerned, because I didn't have all the problems or situations that we have to deal with today. I was not aware of them. So my childhood was Totally normal <laughs> to me. <laughs> While being totally isolated, it was totally normal to me that I had to go up to the white man's house and pump water to have water in our home for cooking, for taking a bath. The fact that there was just so many things that, that I had no running water in the house, no toilet. There was an outdoor toilet. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. That I got I went gotcha. to an outhouse 25 yards from the house, 50 yards from the house to take a crap or a piss. Mm-hmm. The fact that at night, I kept a pot next to the bed to piss and shit in if I woke up in the middle of the night and wanted to, you know, have an evacuation. All of that stuff was absolutely normal to me that I would imagine young people right now can't even understand. You know, they're born with a goddamn iPad or cell phone in their hand. You sit them up on a couch and they can sit up by themselves. Parents put a fucking iPhone or an iPad in their hand. I've only had this laptop for two months, and without Deborah, I don't open it for nothing but porn. I know how to do that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'll send you some recommendations after this.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, okay. now let me ask you this, Steven. Growing up in Memphis, was that initial move to Chicago a mind-blowing cultural experience for you? Did you have to take some time to adjust to the city life?
2: No, it was not. I am probably one of the most blessed and probably one of the most naturally, trying to find the words for this, naturally knowledgeable person. God takes care of fools. And and what did they say? God takes care of uh, fools, little children, mm-hmm. and Stephen. Okay. That's one of his main <laughs> jobs. i never had any problems. I grew up on the West side of Chicago initially. That was gang ridden. I was never in trouble, never in a gang. I avoided or was led around all the negative shit that you can think of that would happen to a young inner city, poor black kid in America. Somehow the universe or God or whoever you believe in guided me around all of that. Later on, if you ask the right questions, I'll get around to telling the stories of how I avoided so much stuff. I lived amidst the middle of the civil rights movement. Yeah, I was... There, the Nightmare Daily issued the order to shoot to kill for all looters. I had tear gas thrown behind me, 25 yards behind me. Tear gas bombs are going off and cops are beating the shit out of individuals. And I'm going across the street to go upstairs to a high rise, me and my buddy to fuck a couple of women. Uh, it It was like I was protected. I've been protected all of my life, Justin. I am such a blessed man. I mean, you said
0: it best earlier man you said you were an observer and i think that describes exactly what you're talking
2: about thank you those are (laughs) that is a great way to put it is that the universe made me an observer as opposed to a participator
0: and i don't need to tell you that that's very fortunate because like you're just saying yourself you're growing up around a lot of turmoil and a lot of shit back in the day
2: Mm -hmm. Oh, hey, man, I lived through it. I will be 76 on my next birthday. So you know the eras and the eras that I have lived through. I've lived through the women's movement, the gay movement, the civil rights movement. I've lived through so many movements without being negatively affected by them Mm -hmm. in any great capacity.
0: Now that you're looking back and reflecting on those times, now that we're talking about it, is there a moment that comes to mind To where maybe you were a bit scared and some of these things were hitting a little close to home.
2: Yeah. I've looked at stuff that I wasn't scared. I didn't know how close I was. Mm-hmm. Do you know I could have been Emmett Till? I mean, if you think of the Emmett Till story, because my nativity was so great that I could have went down that same road. Right. I could have went and whistled at a white woman or said something because I had been living in the North. So, to, And I used to go back down to Tennessee every summer. It's one of the ways I stayed out of trouble in Chicago, just to yeah. segue a little bit, because Every summer, I would go back to Tennessee to visit my grandparents. So I wasn't involved in the gangs and all that shit that was happening in the city. But I could have been that victim that Emmett Till was, except for, you know, again, God, nature, whatever, keeping me out of that. Mm -hmm. I could have said something, could have done something that would have gotten me the same treatment that he got. So it's almost across the board how blessed I've been time after time. And to answer that question. There have been times, yeah, when I should have been scared, but did not know right that I was in that situation. Escaped it even without knowing. Times I've been shot at. Times I've been shot. I have been shot. We just had the bullet removed just a few years ago because of an operation I had to have. They had to do an MRI, so they had to remove the metal. The times that I've almost died and not known it. The times when I should have been afraid, not known that I should have been afraid and come out of it. And it's all. Almost like It's almost like it's best because if I had known to be afraid, I might have made a move oh. that would have made it worse. Right. But because I was so naive about shit, it pretended you, you. know, the universe, yeah, it mm-hmm. led me through it. I like to say sometimes that I know everything. The universe sends me information when I need it, mm. and I know everything. I just don't know what to do with most <laughs> of these shit, I, I'm a blessed man. So amidst
0: all this swamp of bullshit that you're growing up around and going back and forth between Memphis and Chicago, where did you find time to become interested in the arts? Were you interested in theater at all? How did that end? interest come about.
2: You know, it's funny because I thought about and I thought this question would come up and I've answered this question in a very set pattern previously, but I look at all the situations that brought me to here. One of the first was a play I did in grammar school in Michigan. I remember going on stage, it was me and a little white boy named Richard or Dick something, Richard something, and we were doing Robin Hood and Little John. We had a little skit to do Robin Hood and Little John. And we both walked on stage. And this was like, I think, fourth or fifth grade. We walk on stage. He says his line. I say my line. I don't even remember what the line was. But my voice cracked, right? And we both started cracking up. We just both started laughing because my boyfriend, and we stood there and laughed until the teachers drug us to fuck off stage. That was, that was my first experience with showbiz. Later on in life, I had a friend in Chicago who was getting married, and he was getting married at a Catholic church. So we go into this Catholic church to check out the, the, the facility, something, something, something. I started singing while he was looking at the venue in which he was going to have his wedding. Let me let me see if I'm I'm doing this chronologically right even if I'm not so I started singing so the priest says to me hey you got a nice voice we're doing a play the play Oklahoma the music Oklahoma would you like to be in it and I go okay because I'm an okay kind of guy I'm a yeah kind of guy <laughs> let's do it <laughs> I just go along with shit <laughs> and I did this play this musical Oklahoma. I played Ali Hakim you look at the play that character name Ali Hakim and I had several songs and a dance and I did this 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 play and it was cool in the game. Years later, now we get to the story I normally tell. Years later, I am a ladies apparel salesman in Chicago, Michigan Avenue which is equivalent to like Rodeo Drive here in LA or whatever street it is in New York. You know all the big timers and a lot of my Mm -hmm. customers were, because I'm selling ladies shoes and ladies apparel, a lot of my customers were either models or female ad agency executives and they kept telling me I had the physique to be a model because I'm Mm dressed in a suit and tie every day, you know and I'm at my charming best because I'm trying to sell them shit and at the same time my best buddy in life who's passed on now was the first he had become the first black photographer at playboy magazine oh shit so now i'm getting all this you could be a model block I've got a partner who's a photographer at Playboy and we shoot a portfolio. We go, okay, let's take him up on the advice. Now at the same time at another friend who worked for IBM and he was one of the first blacks get a remember how far back I came come through a lot of shit. Now IBM gives him a program, gives him money for a program to do stuff for kids over the summer. And he decided to start a children's theater. So they tapped me for that. Me, my friend Rudy, Rudy Monroe, his name was Saunders Wilson. We would have the initial three. And we would go and put on these plays, these four, three, four people plays where we would play any number of characters. We did Treasure Island and Peter Pan were our two big plays. We built the sets and they were just flats. And we would go anywhere there were children. Hospitals, Boy Scout, Girl Scout, blah, 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 anywhere we could find children, Schools, school programs. And we did this and now I'm modeling because me and Garrick shot a portfolio. We shot pictures and I jumped on the modeling circuit. So now I'm modeling and I'm still selling shoes and I'm doing this. These plays, I'm just having a ball, man. You Mm got to remember, these are the 60s and the 70s, (laughs) and I'm high every motherfucking day. (laughs) You know, I'm dropping two tabs of acid and going to work. Okay? (laughs) At one point, someone asked me to do a play. Someone came in, too, and this is a Really funny story. I've never told this story. Let me tell you something. I've never told anybody. And he, I guess he's shopping with his wife or for his wife. And he says to me that he is the director of a community theater in Deerfield, Illinois. And they were doing a play called Slow Dance on the Killing Ground. You'll look up this play. It's a play about three survivors. One was a Holocaust survivor. One is a the little girl. is. I forget what she survived. A bunch of rapes or something. And my character is a survivor of the streets. Anyway, it's a three hour, three character play. The black guy, the guy that played Randall had fallen out two weeks before opening. And he goes, your personality, your energy, everything, your look fits this role. Would you like to do it? Again, a yes, man. I go, okay. So I go, and we had truncated this. We had truncated the play down to about two and a half hours. I go, and I do this show. It is a, look it up. It is a wonderful, wonderful play called Slow Dance on the Killing Ground. Again, about three survivors of, of intense situations. I go, and I do this play. I nail everything. Within two weeks, I nail everything for a two and a half hour play for three characters we're all on stage practically the whole time i get great reviews i will always remember the last line of the review the last line of the review said we will surely see stephen williams in theater again and i had never done you know other than that childhood stuff right play with any with any kind of significance and meat to it and with any kind of publicity Mm -hmm. to it that sort of sprang forward to Now that portfolio thing that Garrick has shot is starting to work for me. I'm starting to get jobs. Sears Magazine, Montgomery Ward, the catalog. I'm starting to get a few runway things. I'm starting to get a few little commercials. Kroger Grocery Store, A&P back in the day. These are things you. I don't know if you remember. No, I know, Kirby. being a journalist. Being a journalist, you probably mm. know about these things because yeah. of the things you've studied. But I'm starting to, and now I'm starting to get work as a model. And I, I don't remember what my first play was, but I do remember being on stage at the Goodman Theater in Chicago. Theater is one of the most. Uh, Chicago oh, is yes. one of the most wonderful theater towns on the planet. We got me. We got the Cusacks. We got Sinisi. We got Montagna. We got Malcolm bitch we got all of us came out of Chicago <laughs> theater and I came out through the area but I started to get work and my first thing that I really remember I'm on stage with Robert Guillaume we did a play called Benito Sereno it was a show about slave ships and blah 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 but I'm now on stage with you know Robert Guillaume doing one of my first plays and still not realizing and not being into it let me just say this to you Justin I have never wanted to be an actor hmm. I have never not wanted to be an Actor, but i have never wanted to be an actor this was all dropped in my lap so it was a natural
0: progression then it just happened progression Mm -hmm.
2: i call my training under job training i've never had an acting lesson never taken an acting class i think i took one when i came out here to la initially but they were all about opening up and freeing yourself and i thought i wanted the freest motherfuckers on the planet i really don't need this shit this is shit i don't need you know what i'm saying yeah and i also think One of my philosophies is just to segue a little bit. One of my philosophies is you don't, nobody can teach you to act. They can, you train your tool. You learn dialects. You learn to dance. You learn to speak, you da. da, da, you train your tool Mm -hmm. acting is a natural thing that comes from your spirit, your soul, your heart. I use Miles Davis as an example. Mm. Once you've mastered those three valves, you can now play trumpet. So what makes Miles better than anybody else on the planet? It was the soul. It was what was internal, what you have internally that you can give. And you learn, and that that's how I look at my acting. It's like, if I relate to the words and can relate to the situation and have a good director, then I can give you that interpretation mm-hmm. that that writer. And I, I like to ask writers. I hate what we're doing now, this electronic shit back and forth and not being in a room with people and not being able to communicate. But I I like to ask writers, what was your intent? When you wrote these words, what was your intent? And that's what I, that's what I think my job is as an actor, Definitely. to give back to that audience what that writer's intent was. And if everybody's on the same page, that's the whole other thing. You got to get that writer, that director, and that actor on the the same page. Gotta tell this story together. Mm-hmm. We can't be at odds when we tell this story. Yeah, the
0: main players off the screen are at odds or not on the same page as the one on, on the screen that's gonna come off on the screen.
2: Right, that audience has got to see that collaboration between these individuals. And I thought I'll throw in a producer, just for I don't know what they do except money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the art involved is about however many number of people telling that, telling that story with those emotions that the director and the and the writer and the actor want to come across so my shit has come out of a lot of stuff it started at a lot of different places and stopped and started again and then it began to snowball and the snowball for me came with Cooley High and with Blues Brothers the movie
1: mm-hmm. those
2: two movies came to Chicago I won roles in both of those and was then introduced to Hollywood and it continues to snowball now
0: right that was well said number before we venture too far into your career we gotta rewind Mind a little because I can't just gloss over the fact that you said you got shot and I ask you how you got shot.
2: I got shot coming from a party one night in Chicago, Hyde Park, with a group of people, me, two of my brothers, African-American brothers, and one of my Caucasian brothers, and two of our Caucasian sisters. So we're at a hot dog stand waiting. We're going to go up and catch a train and go home. I had a, my buddy, Garrett, the photographer I talked about, yeah, practical yeah. joke. He goes goes upstairs first and tells the clerk, the ticket taker. I got a bunch of people following me. I think, big practical joke on his part. A bunch of people following me. I think they want to rob me. You know, da, da, da. he thought it was funny. In the meantime, downstairs at the hot dog stand, we get confronted by a gang of guys. One of the guys standing outside, he's talking to my girl, the girl I was with. I come outside. She comes up to me and goes, you know, he's tight. And I tell the brother, hey man, she's with me. Okay, back off. Oh, you think you cool or something, huh? You got a white girl with you. gotta remember, this is 60 no, this was 60-something was 60 because 60 I got shot and then I got drafted in 66. So this is before 66. I go, look, man, and it's just me, my buddy James, and now uh, we call him Double O Blue-Eyed Soul. Greg, his name was Double O Blue-Eyed Soul. There's three of us, two girls, a gang of about 15 dudes, right? And and the little dude who's talking to me is a little dude and the name of about five of them right then. And I go, look, bro, back the fuck off. You know, she's with me. Fuck you. And he goes, He says something to me, and I told him I would fuck him up if he didn't back off of me. Because, you know, it's only, now it's just three against five. We didn't mind those odds. This little motherfucker whistles. Bam! We're surrounded by at least 10 more motherfuckers. And I go, oh, shit. And the little cat walks up. He's got a big guy next to it. He walks up and says, now what, brother? And he hauls off and socks me. Bam! He steps behind the dude that was standing next to him it was a big dude. And I just went and hauled off on the big dude because he was there. Bam! And then we heard him. Pop, pop, pop! We heard the pops and then we all started fighting. Me and the two other brothers, me and my brother and my little double old blue-eyed soul. We, him <laughs> we back, it was literally like in a movie, Justin. Backed up back to back and we started fighting. At one point we were driven across the street and onto a meridian where we stood and took our stand. Because now we don't know where the girls are. And we realize we've just abandoned the girls, right? Oh shit. So we go, this is where we, this is where we fall or whatever. We're fighting our asses off. Now we hear sirens and stuff. That's where Garrett comes back in. The clerk upstairs, the ticket taker, had actually called the cops. And the cops are coming. So all of these guys scattered. Now, since just the three of us standing there. Garrick has actually saved our lives with his little practical joke. Cops come. Is everybody okay? Blah, blah, blah. Blah. What happened? They jumped us. Cop looks at me and goes, you've been hit. And I go, yeah, but he didn't hit very hard. And they go, no, <laughs> you, you've been hit, man. And he pointed to me and I looked down at my shirt, my whole chest full of blood. I had actually been shot and didn't even know it.
0: Your adrenaline was pumping.
2: Yeah, adrenaline was pumping like shit. No, <laughs> it's just kind of later on, later in life after I had to have it through, it was really kind of punkish. because they took me to the hospital that night. My buddy James had a bullet hole through his hat, like in the Western. Bullet had missed him by that much lower and it would have hit him in the forehead. One of the girls had been shot in the thigh. So this boy spraying whoever was shooting, sprayed bullets. One hit me, hit her, and just missed James. But they take us to the hospital and shit and And, you know, we all survived it. Long story short. (laughs) (laughs) But we all survived it and it was quite the experience to be shot and not know it to have other people with you that were saved to have that have happened even the way it happened you know just bullshit just... and you gotta remember the era it was and I, I, I tell this story again I think this is one of the first times I've told this story this way from the racist point of view from me being with a white girl and a brother thinking that I was being uppity by saying hey she's with me like nigga you think you somebody I mean, that kind of attitude has stuck with me my entire life relative to the way people think today. There is such a non-human, to me, just a non-righteous, non-human common sense every day. Come on. Like Rodney said, why the fuck can't we just get along? We create problems for ourselves that's not there you'll hear my language i have no problem with using motherfucker cunt bitch blah blah because they're just a group of letters strung together and pronounced a certain way why we make such a big deal of it is beyond me there is no such thing as a profane word to me. There are profane acts. The rape of a child, the murder of an individual, even lying and stealing are profane acts. But a profane word, that ain't about shit to me. Preach. Can you string four letters that were made up, Justin? Now given a choice, let's just say you're given a choice. You got five letters here, four letters, cause they normally call them four letter words. We're going to string these together and pronounce them this way. Now these are going to be bad and these are going to be good. What the fucking logic is that if you have the choice of making a word good bad or neutral why the fuck would you choose bad
0: sticks and stones
2: right it's a stupid stupid ass concept in my mind
0: You're preaching to the choir right now, man. I could not agree more.
2: Good, but it's a stupid ass concept. I mean, you can go to jail for saying shit in a courtroom. A judge can hold you in contempt and send you to jail. That makes no motherfucking sense to me. It's almost like it took us all these years to get marijuana legalized state to state, not even federal. But you, fire or Betzipa or whatever name you can give a pharmaceutical medicine, it may cause shitting, your eyes are turn red, you may grow three legs and you will shit on yourself forever. But yet, it is legal to prescribe. Damn. Marijuana, which has none of that shit, it was illegal and could get you. And we still got people in jail for something that you can get get delivered to your house now. It's fucked up. Anyway, I do not remember what the question.
0: <laughs> At this point, I don't remember either. We're just gonna move on to the next one. <laughs> what was the question? I just asked you about the story about getting shot. That was all.
2: Oh yeah, about getting shot. That's right. But that's how I got shot, you know, just a bullshit ass piece of shit got me shot and I'm blessed that wasn't real serious. Uh, Later on, we found that when I had to have it removed, it was almost embarrassing because it turned out to be a 22, which is a choice of assassins. But back in those days, it was probably old ammunition. So that's how I survived it. It, it, The bullet lodged against my sternum and I know I was shot at close quarters because the first shots that rang out, I was at close quarters. So it lodged against my sternum and they, at Cook County Hospital gotta remember I'm a, I'm a ghetto boy I'm this is poverty they, I go to Cook County Hospital yeah. and they go okay let's just leave it alone but a few inches lower you know lower above my sternum it could have hit you know some organ that would have caused me more damage but again blessed
0: so you've essentially had that bullet in your sternum your entire life
2: right I had it in my system up until I had to, I, I tore my meniscus in my knee and I had to have an MRI they had to take the metal out in order to give me an MRI so that's Bye. how I found out how tiny the slur Like I said, that's the choice of, you know, assassins. You hit them behind the ear with that baby and it tumbles around in your brain and you're as dead as, you know, as if you got hit by a 45.
0: Right. So it seems your practical joker friend is just another example of the universe looking out for Stephen Williams.
2: Lest! Do not fuck with Stephen Williams. (laughs) universe has got my back.
0: So I did also hear you mention in that story that you got drafted. So you got drafted into Vietnam, I'm assuming?
2: I was drafted in 1966. I did two years in the United States military as a soldier, 66 through 68. What I found out later, my entire unit went to Vietnam. You know that, Arrow? Yeah. We were right in the middle of a war that I still don't understand. But me and four other guys from my unit went to Germany. We were shipped out to Germany and we were all communication specialists. Years later, because I always wondered, why the fuck? Because the normal procedure is, even if your training is longer, our training was longer. Because we were communication specialists, we had two weeks longer than what they call AIT, which Mm -hmm. is advanced infantry training. We had a specialty. And it was an obsolete specialty because I was a code specialist. Morse code. Da, da, da. So I spent my time in Germany. Years later, I find out that I'm an only child, a relative to my parents' first marriage and union and children. I was an only son, as were the four other individuals who went to Germany. And they don't send only sons to war zones to this day. That's what Finding Private Ryan right, was that... all about. But you don't send only sons to war zones because if that only son gets killed, then that effectively ends the bloodline of of that individual. So I th- think I was the beneficiary of that particular military law, as were the other four characters, as have been probably a lot of people. And that's, I spent my time in Germany. It was even an obsolete. I I was sort of the last of, I was a code specialist slash infantry guy slash driver. My two cohorts in the tank, we were the corporals' personal Mm guys. We handled all the communications set up in the field. Teletype operator, I've even heard that we're since then. A teletype operator, a Morse code specialist, and a driver slash teletype operator. And we could all drive the PC. And we were the guys responsible for setting up all the communications whenever we went into the field. That is, if we went into a war zone, we would be the guys with the colonel responsible for setting up all the communications. So that's what I did for the 18 months that I spent in Germany practicing that. And I became a a boxer. My sport. Uh, I was a boxer and and my job was, you know, code specialist and and driver for the colonel.
0: Have you talked to anybody
2: that you served with since those days? Since right after basic, I communicated with a couple of the guys. They informed me that our first sergeant who trained us, and that was unusual too, because for some reason he went to Vietnam with the company and he was killed the first day. Damn. First day in, um, he was killed. But other than that, I've had no contact. And you know, this is odd too. I had a friend of mine tell me once, you know, people didn't like you, Stephen. <laughs> I always thought I was very popular. <laughs> think about this. I became a TV star and nobody ever tried to get in touch with me. mean, <laughs> man, if you got a friend, Who's a TV star? I'm calling. Trying to get in yeah, touch no. with them, It's so I don't like this motherfucker. So <laughs> fuck you. <I> <laughs> but no, I've never communicated with them. I would pray and hope that a great deal of them survived their trip because I didn't know what I was going to do, Justin. I had made up in my mind again that universe thing. I I, I didn't want to go to that war. I had had no idea what that war was about, but I was cognizant enough to know that I didn't belong there. Right. You know, and so many like Afghanistan. 20 years of losing lives and shit and for fucking what and what and And that's the same with vietnam to this day i don't know why we were there and we lost that war the most powerful country on the planet supposedly got their asses kicked have continually gotten their asses kicked in wars we ain't won a war yet
0: i forget the exact muhammad ali quote but i'm sure you know what i'm talking about already when ali threatened to lay his gloves down and never box again because he had I had no problem with the Viet Cong.
2: Two things he said. I'm ready to give up my life. I will die before I go over there. And then he said, Ain't no Viet Cong ever called me nigga That knocked my socks off. That man, if you watch this special, there's a special, life. if you watch this, what he went through, we we forget what a lot of these motherfuckers have gone through because we get selective information. What Jackie Robinson went through, what yeah. Muhammad Ali went through, what Jack Johnson went through, the political. shit these were champions these were the best motherfuckers on the planet at what they did and still they couldn't eat in certain restaurants and couldn't fucking drink from certain water fountains and da 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 i mean this is like this shit this evilness boggles my mind
0: you said that you boxed while you were in the service now did you pursue that anymore once you were out or was that something that you strictly did while you were in the army
2: nope I did because I'm not a fighter. Mm. This is is what I learned. I love fucking Mike Tyson. That's my guy. (laughs) My record is 18 and one, okay? Other than Mike, his name was Mike Howell. He was the divisional champion. And the last, very last fight I fought, I fought against him. And I'll also remember the last lines of our review. Mike threw a couple of extra left jabs to squeak out a win over Stephen Williams. But I was a boxer, not a fighter. And there is a difference. Yes. Mike went in that ring to fuck you up or to knock you out. I went in to outbox somebody, but I didn't have the killer heart. You got to have a a different kind of heart to be a champion. There's this lady that's who is my assistant now. Mm -hmm. She is a barrel riding champion. And I've learned so much from people who are champions, no matter what the sport or the activity is, a champion has to have a whole different attitude, a whole different approach. Mm -hmm. They want to win at all costs. And and it's something that's inside you. Mm -hmm. I never had that inside me. I just like the sport. Right.
0: And there's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot you can take from boxing, even if your desire is not to be a champion. I mean, surely just the self-defense aspects is useful.
2: Yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. But you're not going to be a champion with that attitude.
0: Right, right. There's a whole nother
2: attitude you need in order to be a champion at anything, in my opinion. I was the best, okay? <laughs> had I had that championship attitude, I'm sure I could have beat Mike. Right. But Mike had that edge. He had that Because he was a lifer also. See, there's little things. This is a man who was a lifer, what we call somebody who was a military. He was going to yeah. be in the military for the rest of his life. I was mustering out. The night I fought him, I only had about three weeks left in the Army. To give a fuck less. <laughs> whether yeah. or whether or not. <laughs> totally different priority.
0: Now, Stephen, what about that nice singing voice you mentioned earlier? Did you ever pursue music at all Did you record anything
2: even as we speak i've got several friends of mine who are trying to get me into the studio to do music and it's something that i do want to do just right. tonight i started out being able to imitate johnny mathis when i was 15 16 17 i could do johnny mathis almost perfectly and my dad wasn't singing he sang in a spiritual quartet church you know, yeah, yeah, it's gospel stuff. So I have a great voice. I got a good voice, and I say things that may sound egotistical to some people. But when I say that, it means I have a great voice, but I'm not a singer. There's a difference between having a great voice. You know, like, like I explained about Miles and acting, and you can have a great voice and still not be a great singer because you don't know all the intricacies and the just a little delicates of you know, what it takes to be a great singer. So having a great voice is not enough alone. I got a good voice. So, and that's kind of one of my dreams. That's still Mm -hmm. one of my fantasies. And one of my dreams is that I'm going to do some social, some stuff on social media, you know, put some stuff up on Instagram or Facebook and stuff. You know, it's what we're, My friends are kind of planning for me. Because everybody keeps saying, you know, Steve, you got to... And I've done a few musicals. Two of them, I was nominated for the Jefferson Awards in Chicago, which is sort of like the Tony's... Oh, yeah, it's stage. You know, it's Chicago stage. So I've been nominated twice in musicals. Didn't win them. My acting and my singing was great, but I can I cannot. I'm a great dancer, but I cannot follow choreography. After (laughs) one, two, three, four, I'm lost. Okay? (laughs) It's all freeform after that. I cannot follow fucking <laughs> So yeah, so the, the vocal thing is something that, again, is still a fantasy for me. And it's sort of a mini dream. If I had to put it in any certain terms, it's a little mini dream. Something that I'm going to strive for and reach for. I've never reached for the brass ring. Let me put Mm. it that way. Anything, I've never reached for the brass ring. I'm a happy camper doing what I do. People ask me about my career. Now, you haven't mentioned that word yet, but I don't have a career. What I have is a great job history. Denzel's got a fucking career. Brad, Tom, Samuel, they got careers. I have a pretty damn good job history. You you I don't think you can match my resume in television. and You can't match my resume. There's no other actor that's done as many varied characters and the number of things. Because there are people who have become stars with one fucking show. One fucking show made them a star. And they did that show most of their life. You know, one of the prime examples right now is Mariska Hargitay. Mariska from Law & Order. You've never heard of that woman other than that show. (laughs) (laughs) But she has a, I'm sure, I would guess that she has a fabulous motherfucking lifestyle and income and financial stability from that one show. A John Wayne was never anything but John Wayne. Public (laughs) loved him. That motherfucker wasn't an actor. He was John fucking Wayne. (laughs) I will match my resume against any other resume on the goddamn planet when it comes to variety. Why I'm not a star, (laughs) Well, I, I kind of know why I'm not a stop because I'm like this. <laughs> no, nigga, we're not going to make, we're going to let you work. But do you hear yourself? That's as far as you go. <laughs> hey,
0: I say you got pretty damn far. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> all right steven i'm going to tell you my first experience with your work when i was a kid my dad used to work uh, night shift at the chemical plant and he was a huge x files fan so it was my job to make sure that i would get the vhs recording of the latest episode so he could watch it when he got home so with that being said i just wanted to ask you when you look back on your time on the x files what are some of the memories that come back to you
2: listen this was one of my favorite characters and some of my favorite times. Number one, we shot it in Vancouver, which is where I'd already shot 21 Jump Street for five years. Right. So when I moved over to the X Files, a great deal of the people who had worked on 21 Jump Street was now working on X Files. So I was like a little... Prince. When I got the role, uh, it came out of a couple of the guys, I think we call them the Wong Brothers. Please forgive me, guys, if you ever see this, forgetting your names. But a couple of producers had been on 21 Jump Street. They asked me to audition for the X-Files. And I read this role and I didn't know what to do with it. It was such a interesting role. And I decided ambiguity is the magic word. He's called X. Then the X-Files, just say the lines and let the audience figure out who he is. See, the thing about X-Files, if you remember, nobody ever knew who he worked for, whether he was a good guy or a bad guy, nothing. I think they killed him off much too soon, and I'll tell you that quick story. But I love the crew, I love the staff, I love the city. I had a great time. Mitch Flegging yeah, I know was Mitch. one of my favorite people ever, not only as a character, but ever. Our fight was one of the best scenes. Feeling it was short and sweet, but it was just such a connection between us as actors and characters now let's go to why they killed x off so soon yeah this was a story i heard this was a rich character and we had very good writers there was so much more to learn about this man the other character i love was william b davis Cigarette Smoking Man, we had one scene that was so cool where he asked me if I know where Mulder is getting this information from. And I look at him and I lied to him straight up. I loved him as a person and an actor also. But now we got this situation, and I believe this kind of shit. We got a show called The X-Files, and there's one brother on this show, and he's playing X. Think about that. Now, the rumor that I heard was is that Duchovny got so jealous of me as that character X in a show called The X-Files and I was being treated better than he was being treated because half of the crew that was on X-Files had already worked with me for five years. Mm-hmm. So when I came on that show, they treated me better than they treated David because David was in the process of trying to get that show moved back to LA. Ah. If you remember the last two seasons were done in LA back here with his wife Tia and he had, he owned a piece of From what I understand, there was some lawsuit or something where he wants a bunch of money because the network put it in syndication on a cable station as opposed to, see, there's so much shit that happens behind the scenes. It's like I was just doing All Rise. All Rise got canceled because of some behind the scenes shit. Mm. not because of ratings i think i forget the producer's name but some sexual harassment shit all of a sudden the show is canceled not because of ratings or actors that some political shit
0: yeah that's rough man i mean why not just punish the guilty parties involved there's a lot of little guys on shows like that that are now out of a
2: job yeah that we don't so the rumor was david got jealous because i was being treated so much better than he was by the crew and that's because the crew didn't like him because he was getting ready to put them all out of work by moving that show back to la all of these people in vancouver were getting ready to get put out of work i learned this kind of shit and i don't mind saying this shit now man it's it's like these are kind of things that i've been told i'm not supposed to say but if you ain't dealing with <laughs> True Williams, then you ain't dealing with Stephen Williams. <laughs> you know, you cannot deal with me on a political level on any other kind of level other than just basic truth. And truth, let me, let me just go way off subject. What's the biggest thing that motherfuckers get caught up in politically from Hart to Clinton? Hart was like, like thrown out of the presidential race because this girl Donna somebody was sitting on his lap in a picture. It's the bullshit cover up that <laughs> fucks them all up. All he had to say was, well, she was a plan, and I took a picture with her." But yeah. they started trying to cover up all kinds of shit but didn't even know about until you start covering it up. Right, and I right. love what I heard the French president saying about Clinton. Ain't no sense in being president if you can't get your dick sucked in the Oval Office. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey that's a stressful job that should come with the territory right
2: that should come <laughs> with the territory as simple as that it's that cover-up bullshit so i say all that to say don't fuck with me if you don't want to hear the truth don't ask me do i look fat in this dress i'm gonna tell her If you look fat in that dress, I'm going to tell you you look fat. And you knew that, otherwise you wouldn't have asked me that, okay? You knew already you look fat in the dress. So don't fuck with Stephen Williams on anything other than a truth level. I have the two most hated things in my life are thieves and liars. If you are a thief or a liar, you got a big mark against you relative to me whatever it is that calls you to steal or cause you to lie we can deal with that just put it out there and we'll figure out how to fix it <laughs> but once you've told a lie or stole now we got a whole nother goddamn podcast
0: now you don't work exclusively in the horror genre steven but you do have quite a bit of work in it is that something you enjoy or are things just kind of falling into place that way
2: yeah it's been so much fun. Almost everything I've done, I'll just say this real: quick. that the shit that I've been involved with, I'm so blessed in that. From Blues Brothers to Cooley High to 21 Jump Street, The X Files, Supernatural, they're all iconic shows. Pretty much, kind of iconic shows, man. Yeah, I've been blessed that way to have to have been a part of. These fabulous, fabulous shows like Friday the Thirteenth, the Final Friday. If I'm not good at it, I really don't fuck with. It. No shit, I'm mediocre at. No shit, that I'm fabulous at. No, I get, I don't have any. You know, people ask me about my favorite stuff. I don't have a favorite color. I don't have a favorite nothing. I I deal with things at the moment. The way I put it, Justin is this is what I prefer at the moment. The storm people go, what's your favorite color? Like, I don't know a favorite color. Ooh, but I like that gray over there. Or I like that blue over there. I deal with stuff in the moment. I like to say that I, I truly am a person who tries to live in the present, right now in the present. There's no past, there's no future. There's nothing but right now. Oops, right now is, there's nothing but right now. So, so that horror genre has just been something that I've been lucky enough to a nice role in. It's like, I had somebody, I had a, a recent, like a seminar ceremony, da da da, where somebody said about me on social media that Stephen Williams was the only good thing. It, it was a thing on social media about good performances and bad movies. Right, now I, I don't, don't consider Friday the 13th <laughs> <things>, Friday a bad, <laughs> bad movie on social media Stephen Williams was you know his character of Crichton Duke was the best thing in by the 13th I don't have an opinion about that actually I, I appreciate the accolade but I really don't have an opinion about it but I say all that to say that I've just been blessed to have to have worked man to pay the the checks cleared man (laughs) checks are cleared
0: you've already mentioned it but your TV resume is pretty damn ridiculous just like Supernatural that's one of the longest running television shows of all time
2: they ran I think they're done now but they ran 16 17 years yeah those boys are set for life
0: (laughs) now from the outside looking in it seems like everybody on that set were genuine friends is that the vibe that you got from your time on the show
2: I had so much fun Number one, again, Jump Street, X-Files, a couple of guest stars and something, and now supernatural. And I'm recurring. Mm-hmm. So Vancouver became a second home for me. So the enjoyment of the city, the enjoyment of my per- of my surroundings was pleasant. And those guys, they accepted me right off the bat, part of the family. They're young guys. When you think about Jensen, like I'd never seen Jensen Ackles before. I heard he was in Superboy or Superman something. And he made a whole career out of that. Jensen had never done shit. Jared, I'd never heard of fucking Jared. (laughs) They don't have long resumes. They got very lucky to have a long running show like that, that will bring them residuals forever. That brought Uh them a damn good living. I mean, this business is an interesting, interesting business that way, is that you can make a fucking fortune and never have done but one goddamn thing. But we had fun. Jim Beavers was an absolute hoot. The man is just (laughs) like he is on television. He was just like that in real life. You could never tell when he was joking and when he was kid. He has this dry, dry wit uh-huh. that was so much fun.
0: And I have to say, y'all had a great dynamic together.
2: Started the show, I asked about, well, what, what's supposed to be happening here? It was supposed to be two grumpy old men. And if you paid attention to that show, I was his mentor. They say it in the dialogue. I taught him. And we were supposed to be two grumpy old men. But Jim was so good being a grumpy old man that if you notice my character as Rufus was a little bit lighter I didn't want to compete with him as that grumpy old man so it was a little bit lighter but and it made for I think a good chemical reaction on screen. And I had so much fun with him. The boys were so welcoming. Great deal of fun with them. The directors, producers, writers. We all had a great time. That's another character that I don't know why they killed them all so soon.
0: Agreed again, man. At the time, fans were clamoring for a spinoff show of Bobby and Rufus.
2: Yeah. Somebody pitched it once. didn't go, but somebody wanted to pitch. They pitched the Rufus-Bobby, you know, series. They wanted to do a spinoff, thinking about a spinoff for a quick minute. But I thought you got these, and if you just see these two cats in person, man, if you've never seen them in person, these are two beautiful boys. These are two very good looking, the women loved them, you know, very good looking boys, good actors. The chemistry was awesome. And I said to them at one point, who the fuck wants to see me and Bobby after they have watched these guys for so long? Who the fuck (laughs) wants to see these two old men, you know, in a fucking spin-off? But yeah, that was, it was an excellent experience. You know, I've I've yet to have a bad experience on any of my shows relative to the stuff that We hear in the media about clashes and arguments and fights and infighting and political. I've yet to have that because everybody knows, I let everybody know right from the jump. I can be a bigger asshole than anybody on this fucking set. So we either get along or you watch me get fired because I don't give a fuck about this job, maybe the way you give a fuck about it. I do not care, but I will not take any abuse or any bullshit. I go there to have fun and to create as wonderfully as I can. It's insane what we go through these days. I mean, this this H&R and sexual harassment shit. You can't say good morning, that's a pretty dress you've got on to some people without getting some sexual harassment thing. And I'll tell a bitch in a minute, if you don't want me to say good morning to you don't ever say good I will never speak to you again because I'm here to have a good time and to create as much of a creative atmosphere as we can but if anything I do offend you all you got to do is tell me you don't go to the producer or, or the director and complain just say hey I didn't like what you said I don't like your humor whatever the fuck it is you don't like just tell me we're a done deal so not real these days and and politically correct and i don't know what's wrong with human beings
0: (laughs) i hate to tell you this steven but you're the last of a dying breed
2: (laughs) it's it's why i'm not Denzel.
0: (laughs) steven you've had a long and varied career so if you had to nail it down to one piece of advice throughout the whole ride what would you say is the best piece of advice you've received
2: Best piece of advice for, and again, it's not a career, it's a work history. Number one, if I tell the young people, learn how to read. That's what we do. We read, we interpret. Second thing is, do not burn any bridges. The guy that's going to get your coffee today could be your executive producer or your director tomorrow. Treat everybody well on that set and passion there is i wish i was close to it i got a sign across my room i want to read you this dustin because it's about to me it's about they are words by james baldwin passion is not friendly it is arrogant superbly contemptuous of all that is not itself and as the very definition of passion implies the impulse to freedom. It has a mighty intimidating power. It contains a challenge. It contains an unspeakable hope. Those words to me means that passion is everything. If you have a passion for something, keep that passion and you will wake up one morning and you will be that CEO. You will be that musician. You will be that actor or that championship or da, 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 and you won't even know how you got there. And I'll tell you how you got there. You got there through passion. Your passion will drive, will take you through everything you need to be taken through. Hang on to it until you get to where you want to go.
0: Well, Stephen, as we wind down and wrap up here, do you have anything on the horizon, anything in the pipeline?
2: I am taking a health hiatus what I like to call a health hiatus right now. At close to 76, there's so many things, um, you know, and being that baby boomer, that guy from the love era, you know, the great summer of love, Woodstock, acid, blah blah you name it. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt, you know, looking for the hoodie and the jacket, <laughs> and maybe the baseball cap now. <laughs> so I'm taking a little break. I wanna take a break and try to be in great health, For 2022, 2023 and beyond. So that's what I'm doing right now. I will accept the job if it's offered to me here in LA with this COVID thing that's going on. It's hard to make decisions about where you want to travel, when you want to travel, how you want to travel, where you want to stay. So I'm saying I'm keeping my ass at home. Um, And staying as safe as I can and getting as healthy as I can and getting prepared because I'm just beginning, you know, a few Hmm. years back, there was a little organization that gave me a lifetime achievement award. And in my acceptance speech, I said to them, you may have to rename this because I'm just getting fucking started (laughs) Pardon me. My lifetime achievement yet. So, and and in this profession, Justin, we can work up until we can't remember lines anymore, and yeah. then we can work beyond that. Yeah. This is a profession where you never really have to retire. <laughs> Clint just directed something that may get some awards. What what is Cry Macho? I think it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And Eastwood, you can do this forever. Mm-hmm. You know, you can get to a point where you can't play nothing but dead bodies. <laughs> That's if a they job. need an actual body instead of a dummy, you can lay your mother and cripple ass there. <laughs> On the gurney or wherever they need you to laugh. This is a great profession, man. It's a great profession. And if you have love and passion for it, you can do it right up until you take your last breath. You know, you know, my, my two favorite people without even knowing them, what I know that work was uh Jessica, Tandy, and Kroom. What's his name? Jessica Tandy. And they did stage forever. Those two people I admire because it was almost like Ruby D and Ozzie Davis. Just a wonderful, wonderful example of that longevity that we can have in showbiz.
0: Well, Stephen, we're coming up on the end here. I hope I didn't bore you to death.
2: And feel free, Justin, feel free. You got the number. Feel free to give me a call. Do not hesitate. I'm I'm a 24-7 kind of guy. I got so you man. feel free man and thank you for what you do for this opportunity because I don't have a publicist I don't do social media so I thank you for this opportunity to put me out there a little bit and go raw baby I am who I am I'm not that phony that politically correct that work the system kind of shit and I, let me just say this to end <laughs> when I think about because I like to say shit that maybe might create some controversy but when I I think about what's her name, Kylie. I think Kardashian motherfucking bitches on the planet. Chris and her group. When people go, this girl is a billionaireess, a billionaire. And where's that money coming from? I would like to tell the public that money came from your pocket, motherfuckers. <laughs> that money didn't come from shit she did. That other than to to work the system. Understand? Because I don't think the public understands when they go, ooh, she's a billionaire yeah she got your money in her motherfucking pocket that's how she got to be a billionaire you bought some shit and she ain't had shit to do with it other than putting her name to so understand what the real deal is wake up america <laughs> wake up world talk to you soon Justin.
1: welcome to the night